Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. Looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutions, starting from 1839, working forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Just the beginning announcements. If you'd like to start the podcast, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com/crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com if you'd like to join the Substack. And if you'd like to have anything appear on the Substack, please send me an email at chineserevolutions@gmail.com. I've picked up one or two other subscribers there. I confess my. Uh, my strategy behind the podcast, uh, Substack and everything, is a bit of a mixed bag. So if you write in, this will give me some ideas for what to send out for you. Okay. So, oh yes, also please rate, review, subscribe, share on all platforms. Okay, so here we go. Uh, last week we went over the structure of Zeng Guofan's army and his first campaigns, the uh, structure of the base unit making up his army, a 505-man brigade, the weapons they used, which were common for the time, and Zeng Guofan's initial try as a military campaigner, very, very mixed results, some wins but catastrophic losses. He tried to commit suicide on two separate occasions, somebody saving him each time, and he, he submitted an accepted letter of resignation, and so he was out for a year. Like that—that's—that's that's how badly it started. He just didn't—it just didn't work. It, like it, it, there there was a steep learning curve, you know, and more so than the medical field, if not, you know. Okay, so, uh, military science and proficiency as a you know, as a general proficiency as a soldier, it proceeds over a mountain of bodies. I mean, in the medical field, you, know, you also have the people who get well. Well, in in the military, you're killing or dying. That's, that's the point. Killing, dying, wounding, destroying things. Testing how many of your soldiers you can afford to lose. Testing whether to kill or take prisoners. Testing what hardships an army can withstand. You know, on the offense or on the defense. So Zhang Guofan, you know, he's being what we might call a scholar of the humanities, surely knew with exquisite agony what his defeat cost himself and others. So today we'll see him become a much better, much more powerful general. So in the body of this episode, we are following Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So, uh, today we're going to see what it takes for Tsung Guofan to start to win. Though he and his forces will continue to take heartbreaking losses, the balancing of responsibilities to home and his troops from home, uh... It balanced against the responsibility to the emperor, he's going to work out a good mix that is going to help him know what to focus on 
and he's going to gain confidence, experience, and additional political authority to help him keep doing the job assigned to him. And uh, something I think we'll see today, ordering someone to do something for you is not the same as that thing being accomplished. Last week we talked about strength coming from the ability of political leadership to trust military subordinates to accomplish a task. By disobeying some later orders, Zeng Guofan was able to stay on the most profitable task. Another one of these books that I've only read part of that has proven paradigmatic for my understanding of different things about the world is The Army and Vietnam by Andrew Krapinovich. Uh, he, he cites somebody, guerrilla warfare reverses supply lines. Instead of supplies going from the rear to the front to supply the armed conflict as the main thing, they flow backwards to the political leaders in the rear. Traditionally, troops win, you know, the people who sent them win, troops lose, whoever sent them loses. Well, in a guerrilla fight, even huge losses become material for propaganda and can be used to prop up the legitimacy of the political figures behind the guerrilla force. So with Zhang Guofan, being able to keep political legitimacy helped him win. He needed to keep the loyalty of troops who could take or leave the emperor. They didn't care so much which particular emperor it was. And he was appointed to, he was appointed by, and indeed was going, you know, to all his effort in a task he didn't want for the sake of the emperor. So keeping legitimacy both in the eyes of his troops and in the authorities in Beijing, this is what helped him get a coherent, workable strategy to defeat the Taiping. And we're going to see something as additional Chinese revolutions come in to our narrative. Whoever maintains political longevity is still going to be in the game, still worth taking seriously. So Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the nationalists, he's going to seem weak and ineffectual, but he did have a handle on the fight that he thought was the main one. Uh, Mao Zedong won out in the Chinese Civil War and died in power, so you know he succeeded. So the and so today we're going to be talking a lot about politics. So Zhang Guofan needing to address his troops' main motivation of protecting home and tactfully refusing orders from the emperor while pursuing the overall objective of defeating the Taiping, and then we'll talk about his promotion to higher rank while pursuing a larger goal. Zhang Guofan's army had two sides to its coin, as it were. On the one side, it was Closely knit, you know, highly motivated because of the personal relationship recruitment policy, they are very, very much fighting for home. But on the other side, because it is fighting for home, it's really hard to take them into other provinces. It's like, you know, why are we, we're from Nevada, why are we fighting for Utah? Like, like what's, I don't care about Utah, I want, I want to protect Nevada. If Nevada's okay, then we can you know, build a really big fort right on the 
border and protect Nevada. Well, Zhang Guofan couldn't do that. He had to win. While Zhang Guofan had an, in, had an increasing sense of mission, he knew his subordinates did not. As he looked down the Yangtze to Nanjing, he explained to the troops that expeditions into provinces outside Hunan were ways of protecting Hunan. You know, so it's like when America went to the war in Iraq in 2003, the idea was, we'll fight them over there rather than here at home. And I, you know, as stupid high school student, believed this at the time. Now, it, 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 it was an effective message. Like, yeah, we're, we're fighting for America, but we're going to fight them over there rather than let them do another 9-11 here in America, another terrorist attack. Yeah, it, it got the point across. It was an effective piece of rhetoric. You know, but then that was all shaken up when the war changed, but we'll see how he deals with that. Uh, so the, the, the Taiping Rebellion is a multiple-front war fighting on all sides. So Taiping or Qing commanders were cut off from headquarters, but they're still fighting for the cause. Uh, one thing that I remember about Tsung Guofan's story of going home to mourn the death of his mother, he went the long roundabout way around Taiping forces, so what you could really have is people traveling, and it's not like there's a hard border between two sides. It's more like there's frontiers and pockets and holes and all these things. And so you know, even Zhang Guofan himself, who would be a key part of putting down the Taiping Rebellion, he traveled through contested country, taking the safe route, taking the long way around. And so when Qing or Taiping armies pass through these areas, they, you know, they, they're, the population is not necessarily supporting the fight. They might help agents from either side. They might sell to the armies, do label, do labor for, or, you know, whatever, given the right family or friend connections, financial incentives or coercion, they're just kind of getting on. And so they're... So Zhang Guofan is having to manage the politics of all this. We'll go more into detail on his political uh, situation. Spring 1859, while Zhang Guofan and his army are besieging the Taiping-held city of Jingdezhen, famous for uh, ceramics, uh, a Taiping army of 200,000 to 300,000 goes around them into Hunan. It's a huge dilemma for Zhang Guofan. Uh, he can't just tell his troops to bend over, here it comes again, or lay back and think of England. Uh and expect them to just keep fighting for the emperor. You know, like professional soldiers might be able to detach their care for home and family from what they have to do in the moment. They might be able to do that, but you don't have a lot of guys like that everywhere. 
they have to have some reason why they're fighting. You know, but Hunan is not the main goal of the war because Taiping have they've hunkered down in Nanjing, and if the 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 Qing the the official dynasty wants to win the war, they have to cut the head off of the Taiping monster. They have to defeat the the leadership at Nanjing. So how Zhongguofan solved that. He transferred some of his commanders back to Hunan to pull together the discharged, furloughed, and retired Hunan army soldiers they could find, and they got 40,000, and they held off a force at least five times their size. Um, so one of the things about castles and fortresses, they were critical for controlling a whole area because if you have a specially designed area where an enemy very intent on hurting you can remain, you can't be entirely sure of your control of the surrounding area. So that's what the Hunan army used. Um, they were working on the defensive, so they had the defender's advantage, it was a gamble, but it did pay off. Zongguofan's reassurances were based on hope and not fact, but the hope did come through this time. After the fall of Jingdezhen, uh, Zongguofan did start to send back reinforcements. Presumably, others staying on the front lines with Zongguofan would be reassured that someone was going back to Hunan to cover home, while the main fight continued where they were. Um, and as Zhang Guofan gained more experience, and he gained more trust in his own abilities and in his own approach to winning the war, you know, as we just talked about, he worked out a way to ask troops to trust him, but not just run to protect home. Uh, so what he would how he did it was he said that the fight outside of Hunan was important for protecting Hunan. So he set up that force of guys back in Hunan for vacation or who had been discharged from the army or whatever. He got them to protect Hunan itself so that the... Uh, so that the, his forces closer to the you know closer to the main fight would be free to keep fighting and focus there so he he did something about protecting home you know but then you know, but then later you also see when the emperor tries to order Zhongguofan to go to protect Sichuan province which is further into China very far from Nanjing Zhang Guofan declined the emperor's order. Now he did this, you know, with you know, giving reasons and being tactful and all that, because this is the emperor he's writing to. This he it would have worked against the campaign that Zhang Guofan was trying to get his troops to believe in. You know, they wouldn't have seen this diversion as an extension of protecting Hunan. It was the emperor. You know, trying to 
care for his extended empire, but again, like the state of Nevada and state of Utah example, Zhang Guofan is getting some people from Hunan to help protect Hunan fairly directly. And so if they just go uh, help Sichuan, well, maybe all of these highly motivated soldiers are going to become as ineffectual as the regular Qing forces. And so Zhang Guofan knew what he had to focus on to help his army remain powerful. If he was going to uh, take the Hunan army away from the main fight, that's also some very, very rugged territory to pass over. I've taken uh, trains through those parts of China, and it's it's amazing just how many tunnels you go through when you're on a train going through western China. You, you, you go through tunnels like a crying person goes through tissues. It's just... The, there's, it's, there's just so much engineering that had to go into making Western China accessible by modern transportation. Tunnels, bridges, curving around mountains. It's, it, it's really amazing. I once went from Beijing to Chengdu entirely by electric train. There's power lines the whole way, so that means there's power stations the whole way. It's that's that's what it took to make that easy. And so this would have been marching, riding horses, whatever it took. So Tsung Guofan really called it right there. Uh, and it would have deprived Tsung Guofan and his forces of credit for helping take Nanjing. And we're going to see a plot twist now that is going to catapult Tsung Guofan to even greater importance. In 1860, the Taiping managed to break the siege of Nanjing. By May, the imperial armies were defeated and the commanders were dead. Uh, and, you know, it's appalling to think of every you know single-sentence description of an army being destroyed or defeated. That includes a lot of death, injury, destruction. Yeah, they were defeated. Okay, like, what's the body count? In June, the emperor appointed Zheng Guofan to the governor generalship of Anhui, Jiangsu, and Jiangxi provinces, and these were the three provinces suffering the most destruction from the war. And by the end of August, uh, Zheng Guofan is also appointed the imperial commissioner in charge of military affairs in those provinces. Because the emperor was in such desperate straits to find somebody who could deal with the situation, Zheng Guofan received the conventional authority in the right places to remove a lot of his previous frustrations. And so now as the, the chief civil administrator, he could put his people in the lesser posts important for supporting the campaign. And so now he could have them do what it took to get the necessary support from the local elites and other parts of the population. And it, because he's the chief military figure, he could command what was left of the regular army and the local militias. So now they'd all be on the same page and not working at cross purposes. So he could order somebody to, you know, you hold this part of the river while we do this. 
And so one way that helps is it frees up troops definitely loyal to him for more active work, and it gives him an opportunity to sideline broken down or not so enthusiastic forces. So he could, you know, he could use the the troops that are all busted up to have them guard supplies or something. And now they're not going to be stopping Zheng Guofan's Hunan army. When he was forming the army at the beginning, sometimes his soldiers would be arrested, sometimes even killed by regular army units. Well, not anymore. And there's no need to figure out who's fighting and who's only pretending to fight, because now Zheng Guofan knows what troops he can rely on, and so if there's some army unit that kind of does its thing by pretending to fight and sending in reports of false victories, things like that, well, Zheng Guofan can deal with that. There's an old Chinese saying, when the general is outside the capital, the ruler's orders won't be followed. So, however it appeared in Beijing, Zheng Guofan only trusted his own sense, his own experience, his own plan. And he only trusted this more and more because he was on the ground, he was the one doing it, he built the army, he took them through combat, and he saw that he could do it. And for his own plan, he later ignored orders from Beijing to go downriver to support Suzhou and Shanghai on the coast. Nanjing is actually a Chinese city I've never been to. It's a bit inland from the coast. So he's not even... Shanghai, if you look at the story of that during the Taiping Rebellion, always there's going to be the threat of Taiping forces coming in. Well, Tsung Guofan isn't going to be one of the people fighting the Taiping in Shanghai. He's going to focus on the big prize, Nanjing. Let's again compare this to the American Civil War. Uh, Every general up to Grant fell short in one way or another from Lincoln's desire that the army close with and destroy the Confederate forces in the field. You know, did you win a victory? Okay, follow up on it and destroy the enemy as they retreat. Did you lose? Uh, Press the advantage of more soldiers, weapons, and supplies and grind the enemy down, where General Grant uh, had a string of victories showing that he could do the job and that he had done the job in that same war. He also understood Lincoln's political necessities of continuing to show that the Union Army was fighting destroying and defeating the Confederate rebel forces. So the so where Zheng Guofan is working here, he okay, he didn't want this military job. He didn't want that, but to protect the legitimacy of the Emperor in Beijing he has to win the war. And so he's continuing... There's there's nobody else who 
is going to really do better than Zunguofan. We can check that in, in later episodes, but uh, the Zunguofan understands that he has to defeat the Taiping in order to end the threat to to his home province of Yun, of Hunan, for whose sake he took the the job from the emperor. And so, you know, so he understands that he's going to have to do whatever it takes, just like General Grant understood that he was given this job, he was given the support of the U.S. president, but there was that that support was contingent on success. And so, as in the, so for either Grant or Zhongguofan, they 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 understood that victory was political necessity so some of is and so Zhongguofan's personal experience in Beijing showed him just how corrupt and inefficient the bureaucracy in the capital could could be uh, there's an interesting point from Ottoman the heavenly kingdom you know on the one side a bureaucracy wants procedure okay this is an interesting okay the the thing i just said is an interesting point from autumn in the heavenly kingdom so this is my own thought here you know on the one side a bureaucracy wants procedures and a chain of command followed on the other side high level bureaucrats have egos that require feeding and it's bad office politics to just ignore this well We'll see at the end how Zhongguofan is ultimately treated. But also understand that Sunzi himself, you know, Sunzi, Art of War, uh, he retired from politics after winning the military campaign assigned to him. So China does have a tradition of military commanders doing their thing and setting aside power when it's done. Uh, but the interesting thing about Zhongguofan is he's essentially a bureaucrat. You know, he'd love to be back in administration and doing study and making official interpretations of Confucian doctrine to help formulate contemporary policy. He didn't really want to do the military thing. So he doesn't really want to be in a position to where, you know, he suddenly has an army and he could, I guess, go replace the emperor if he wanted. That wasn't really what he wanted to do. Uh, he wanted to be a bureaucrat. He wanted to be a scholar. That's that's what he was. So, you know, what's it going to take to win? Zheng Guofan really liked the game Go uh, with the white and the black pieces, and you try to encircle your opponent and hold the superior position. He distinguished between roving bandits and pretender bandits. Roving bandits, you know, give them a lot of trouble, force them to stop and fight, take the momentum out of them, Pretender bandits, like the pretender to the throne, they want a capital, uh, so fix them in place and cut off their support and, you know, take them by siege, surround them. The game was going to be to move up the Yangtze to take fortified cities one by one to finally cut off the rebel capital at Nanjing. And in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, you see... Uh, Zheng Guofan is being quoted as criticizing the imperial army for failing to completely encircle Nanjing. Uh, 
And what he's going to go for is imperial control of the river and of the land to, to really succeed in taking Nanjing by siege. Next week, we'll get into how that would work. Let's look up what, let's add up what Tsang Guofan has going for him. He has the legitimacy of being backed by the Qing regime, an intangible quality not gained by simple local military supremacy. Because of his legitimacy, is an easier time getting supplies. He could kind of draw on the rest of the Chinese empire. You know, he could send orders to you know, all sides of the empire, the empire, and have it come through. Like, like you know, he could get on you know, on Amazon, as it were, and have deliveries brought to him because he's a lawful per, he's a lawful customer, whereas the Taiping, they needed to turn to smugglers, they needed to use their own industry and make whatever they needed. Zhang Guofan could just could put in an order and have it delivered. It's not that simple, but he he that is the kind of edge that does really help. He had no connection to the old corrupt military classes. He's free to defy his new strategy as he saw fit. His lack of competition from other commanders. Um, you know, so he, he the emperor supported him and his ideas because there was no alternative. There were other military forces in existence, but the emperor had to support Zhongguofan because he was still in the game, he was still in the fight. Even though his forces were much smaller than the Taiping forces, which were, I mean, it's just like the, uh, the, his, his group of 40,000 soldiers held off a force at least five times larger than theirs. I, I don't, I, 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 you know, the Taiping were kind of a mix of bandits and a formal army. They they had discipline, they had units, they had all these things. But they didn't have the legitimacy of being an established state. Uh, Zhang Guofan had the loyalty of troops under him. They were recruited through personal association they gained experience fighting under Zhongguofan, and they were with him you know, from the same home province. But then, working against Zhongguofan, he's working with much smaller forces than what the Taiping rebels had, as I just said, and he's going to have to fight with strategy and not brute force. So if you think of a sword and shield, you can stab with the sword, but you can also bash with the shield and keep the other guy from having enough space to swing his sword. So that's what Zhang Guofan is going to do. He's going to have to use everything he's got, you know, like, like set up a defensive thing, but he set it up right exactly where you want the enemy to attack you so that the enemy is destroyed, but you're not the one just launching an attack. That's the kind of stuff he's going to have to do. All right, that's it for this episode. Again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You could join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And please do send me an email, chineserevolutions 
at gmail.com that'll help me understand, you know, things to add, other things to tweak. And thanks for listening. I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. See you next time.